welcome to Uptown Chats, a podcast where we share stories about environmental justice by and for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Lonnie. And I'm your other co-host, Jaren. And we're both from We Act for Environmental Justice. Jaren, what is We Act's mission? It's a great question. We Act's mission is to build healthy communities by ensuring that people of color and or low-income residents participate meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental health and protection policies and practices. Speaking of protecting people of color, it's also February, which means... Black History Month? Exactly. Ding, 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 ding. Yay, do I get a prize? No, you don't get a prize. Because I just get to keep my job. <laughs> you get to keep your job Yay. because we celebrate Black History every single day at We Act. Yeah, absolutely. It is very much a part and embedded in the work that we do of celebrating the the work of of people of color. Even our executive director, Peggy Shepard, is an important part of black history, specifically through her role in the environmental justice movement. So 35 years ago, she helped coordinate a demonstration against the North River sewage treatment plant that shut down the West Side Highway. And that led to a lawsuit against the plant, which resulted in millions of dollars to fix the plant, and also led to the formation of We Act. So cool. A little bit of history about Peggy and about We Act. So we wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for Peggy. Yeah. Thank you, Peggy. <laughs> and guess what else uh, February means? Valentine's Day. Yes. Uh, how do you like to spend Valentine's Day, Lonnie? Um, I haven't spent a Valentine's Day doing anything since elementary school. And we all used to do, give out the little cards and the candy. Which I love. I wish we would do more of that. I miss I miss my uh, cute little Valentine's Day cards I used to get. And I wish adults would bring that back. You know, our generation needs to... We're full of nostalgia. We love bringing things back. All the reboots. Let's reboot old school Valentine's Day. Next, next Valentine's Day when you go to work, cut out your little heart envelope, put it on your desk, and tell everyone to bring their, their cute little Valentine's cards and candy. Um, I think we can make that a part of office culture. Absolutely, we should. I want to bring it back. Reboot, reboot Valentine's Day. Uh, well, how do you feel about Alani? Do you do you feel beautiful on Valentine's Day? Does it make you feel beautiful? I don't know if Valentine's Day makes me personally feel beautiful, but I do know that a lot of people on this day they get beautiful for their significant other, or they might be going on a date or something like that. So they're gonna get all dressed up. They're gonna probably put on some makeup, some per cologne, perfume. Maybe take a shower. <laughs> Hopefully they're taking a shower. <laughs> that doesn't speak to anything about my personal hygiene. I take a shower every day. But, you know, some there's, sometimes there's people that, you know, it's a good reminder on Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, I should, I should probably shower. Come on, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Wear deodorant. All the, you know, just the basic things. But, you know, it's interesting to think about this proximity between Valentine's Day and Black History Month and how those two things kind of mix in, in society when we think about... Uh, being beautiful and, and people of color like what are some of the barriers in our society that prevent people of color from feeling beautiful and uh, we actually had a report come out recently from we act about a survey that we did with adults in northern manhattan looking at beauty and beauty standards especially uh, in terms of how that impacts their health and as part of that survey, there were about 300 adults that were interviewed and asked about their perceptions of beauty and different products that they used, including hair relaxers and skin lighteners, which often feed into 
perceptions around beauty and colorism. Yeah, I also read this report, and there's two things that that struck me. Um, one was that 50% of the respondents believe that other people think that straight hair makes them look more beautiful and more professional. And also that more than half of the respondents believe that others think that light skin makes them beautiful. So this kind of perpetuating this idea of a beauty standard that is straight hair and light skin. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think about how that penetrates into our society. And one thing I like about this report is it starts to answer some of these questions about what are some perceptions around beauty and how that impacts product usage, especially in, you know, specifically in Northern Manhattan. But it also leaves room to answer some of these other questions that I think are still lingering about impacts of, of racialized beauty standards and, and society in general. One of them, I think, is what are European beauty standards and how do they show up in our society and how does that play into to colorism and what does colorism look like in our society today? Also brings up, how do these standards translate to the use of beauty products? Um, why are some of these products that we use so toxic and why aren't they regulated? It's a great question. It's kind of scary, honestly, but we won't spend too much time talking about that. We'll definitely get into it. And I think one of the last questions I think is important to, to answer is how do we protect our health and reclaim our definition of beauty in the face of all of these, you know, external factors and external forces that are that are shaping our standards and impacting our bodies? And luckily, we are joined in this episode by two guest speakers, including TK Sacco, who is a great social media advocate around colorism and the impacts on our health and beauty standards. And also, we're going to be joined by WEAC's very own Ewa Vosper, who works on our federal policy team and has done a lot of work around actually trying to regulate some of these toxics in these products. Exactly. So two great guests for you today. We're going to roll our interview with TK first, and then we'll be back with you with Ewa afterwards. Okay, so my name is TK Saka. I was originally born in Freetown, Sierra Leone, but I moved to the States when I was around five years old. I've lived in Philly for most of my life, which has been exciting. I really love Philly. I have so much family there. Um, There's so many West African people in Philly, so it's like a little cultural like bubble of West Africans, which is really nice. Reminds me a lot of Harlem, actually. Um, these parts of Harlem are like Nicholas Ave, mm-hmm. 125th. I recently graduated from Columbia University, where I studied psychology and public health. I really enjoyed my time there despite COVID and all of its, you know. <laughs> but um, while I was at Columbia, I got to do a lot of work at Mailman School of Public Health, which really opened my eyes about just environmental injustice. And it just made me look at laws differently and how laws impact environmental injustice. And I want to be a lawyer in the future. Um, at maybe at the intersection of law and environmental justice. So I'm still figuring that out. And that's been very exciting. In 2020 summer, I started the digital platform, The Darkest Two, and it started off as an online space to give 
dark-skinned um, black people who also experience misogyny, a platform to really delve into their experiences and be truthful and vulnerable and super honest about how the world makes them feel because if they're dark-skinned and since then it's erupted and so many people have found the platform and it's helped so many people really be self-reflective and not just darks not just people affected by colorism and misogyny but also people who perpetuate it you know it's made them um, reflect on the ways they are implicated and uh, making black people who experience those vices feel lesser um, than they should be feeling so that's been a very interesting ride and it's taken me several different places um, including here which is which I love and right now since graduating um, from Columbia last year I've started my first full-time adult job which is really nice I work at Exalt Youth it's a nonprofit that serves 15 to 19 year old New York City youth who've had some type of contact with the criminal justice system so as you imagine I'm working with a lot of youth of color, a lot of um, black youth, and the experience is so fulfilling because although I went to a pretty resourced high school, and obviously Columbia is very resourced, I did go to a middle school in Southwest Philly that was super underfunded, um, bars on the windows, like very punitive, like hyper-disciplinary, and it was just like the school to prison pipeline personified. So I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to work with youth who do go to those kind of schools, not just for middle school, but also for high school who might not ever make it onto a college campus. Um, I'm glad I get the opportunity to work on them and be a part of their support network and help them with help them manage everything that's going on in their lives, educationally, criminal justice-wise, and it's just a very fulfilling experience. So that's where I am currently. <laughs> Thank you for that. It's super helpful nice. to have some context for how you got to, to where you're at now. And that's so inspiring for you to kind of do that. And it, there's been a lot of conversation about social media and kind of their health effects, particularly on young girls and teens. And so it's interesting that you take a platform that can basically proliferate or even make things like colorism worse and kind of create a space within the platforms that are kind of perpetuating these problems and create a space so that you can have the, the counter conversation about that. So I think that's great uh, that you were able to do that. And so like before we kind of keep going on with the conversation, you do use the word colorism. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you define colorism? Mm -hmm. How I define colorism, it's more than just your romantic preference for lighter skinned people. Colorism has a lot of systemic implications for health and employment and just it just cause it just creates unfavorable life outcomes for darker skinned people and it's something that can be traced back to colonialism and chattel slavery and it's something that also has a lot of class implications so like historically people who were had to work had to be out in the fields um had to be experienced more sun were darker you know and that their darker skin became a class signifier so it's really also important not to divorce colorism from 
all the other isms and institutional vices that exist. So that's how I like to think of colorism holistically. I think people are complicating their definitions of colorism, which is good. I think in the past it was just, oh, like, I just don't like dark-skinned girls and that's my preference and blah, blah, blah. But I think people are starting to realize that even besides the more systemic structural consequences of colorism, even your romantic preferences say a lot about like who you're willing to advocate for, who you think is smart, who you think is worthy, really who you think is like human. And I think people are, I hope at least that they're becoming more self-reflective even about the the things that they think are like no one's business and don't really affect how they treat other people. So I just, one of my biggest goals is just for people to take, coloris- take colorism as seriously as they take all like racism and really complicate these conversations around systemic inequality because I think they're very surface level right now. And I think colorism can be like an entryway to think about other intergroup oppressions like like fat phobia um, or even like futurism or texturism. I just want people to understand that it's not just black and white. It's not just like black people, all black people experience oppression the same way. It's like, oh, what about like trans black people and like queer black folk? I just want people to complicate their understanding of inequality so we can not leave people behind. Colorism is really an entryway to think about oppression, not just not just happening between these broad groups, but like also happening internally within groups, within black people, you know, within um, same race people. So that's my definition of colorism. I look at it very holistically and I look at it as intersectional and intersecting a lot of other things people are already thinking about. So I encourage people to also complicate their understanding of colorism. It's a very holistic, like you said, mm-hmm. definition that I appreciate. And I, there's one thing I want to circle back to really quickly. You mentioned a couple other isms that might be helpful for us to define again for, yes. for folks. So texturism, I think there was one other one. I mentioned texturism, texturism, uh, featureism, fat phobia. Mm-hmm. I alluded to um, ableism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you, at least for a couple of those, could you mm-hmm. give, you know, a, at least a basic yeah. understanding of what those mean for, for you? Yeah. So for texturism, it's the idea that looser patterned hair is more desirable. It's more rewardable. Um, longer hair is more desirable. And you see that a lot with how black hair is like vilified in like the workspace and how we have things like the Crown Act. Like we need that, even the fact that we need legislation to like combat hair, black hair hate is crazy to me, Um, but it's something that happens. And I think with texturism, it just makes me think of um, just black women in general have to make so many sacrifices to conform and they really have to just weigh certain things like what am I getting my hair done? Or like, I can't even roll out the bed and just, you know, comb my hair because it has to look this way and mm-hmm. I'm going to get stares. It's going to be called unprofessional. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what texturism is. And then futurism, and a lot of these things overlap, of course. Mm-hmm. But futurism is the idea that certain 
physical like facial features have been just historically like vilified like large noses and um futurism is not these things are just not um unique to black people of course i i think a lot like for example um with the jewish community there's a lot of stereotypes about their noses and a lot of like anti-semitism there that's just like centered around some of their like physical features so i think about that i also think about black people and like i've seen on tiktok that it seems like a lot more black women are opting for like nose jobs and like they think that like bigger noses are more masculine and like smaller noses are more like feminine and there's like a history there i also think about big lips you know um that there seems to be and it's like complicated because cultural appropriation and stuff like that but more people seem to be liking bigger lips these days but it's like can't be too big because then it's like weird but then it can't so there's also like a history there with like big lips and like even if you think about um depictions of just minstrel characters you know they have like super big lips and like um like big noses and that there's all there's such a deep history there and then i also mentioned fat phobia which is something um i'm trying to learn more uh, more about recently and fat phobia it's not just like the the dislike for bigger bodies it's also has implications for anti-blackness and like black people being um historically associated with like different sized bodies and like weird bad proportioned bodies um and there's such a history there and there's an ongoing history there with medical racism when um bigger people um from what i've read go to the hospital or the doctor's office they're if they're experiencing some type of illness or pain that's not immediately investigated um their bodies are blamed you know it's like oh go lose weight first and then we'll talk about mm-hmm. the cysts or the fibroids in your stomach you know even though like one has nothing to do with the other and um so i've just been thinking about all these other things besides colorism that also intersect with colorism mainly because um the people who talk to me the dark-skinned women and girls who talk to me will bring up the other things they'll be like I'm not just dark skin, I'm also fat and this is how that has uniquely shaped my experience and that's that's why probably me and you have a different experience as someone who is not fat or they'll say I'm not just dark skinned, I'm also disabled, I'm in a wheelchair, like I have limited um mobility and that's also um uniquely shapes my experience. It's not just colorism. So I think it's really been um the different perspectives I've heard from dark-skinned people that have really compelled me to delve into the other isms and phobias that exist that are making for very unique distinct experiences for black people. It seems like you know you've created your platform to also to to further complicate that right mm-hmm. to to explore all of these different dimensions i love when you say we should start complicating those kind of conversations mm-hmm. because it's not as simple um, as people may want to believe and there's a lot mm-hmm. of different layers and people have so many different identities and so many different things mm-hmm. that they have to deal with and it's sometimes can be hard to isolate or silo these uh, individual thing for sure. Um, it's all the Venn diagrams. Over, exactly. Yeah. Venn diagram on Venn diagram on Venn exactly. diagram. So many. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, talk about a little, you know, personally, kind of like how has colorism showed up 
for you mm-hmm. and and in work place or in life mm-hmm. but i used to live in washington and i went to a predominantly white elementary school up until the third grade um before i moved to philly and it was such an experience in a lot of my classes i was the only black girl so um i wasn't really i'm sure i was also experiencing colorism because white people also notice like colorism what I was really experiencing there was racism, anti-blackness, xenophobia, and it's just like, why do you talk like that? Why do you have an accent? Why do your parents have an accent? Why are you black? <laughs> you know? But when I moved to Philly, I was relieved to, and excited to be surrounded by other black kids because I thought, oh, that was the only problem that exists in the world, like just anti-blackness, you know? But then I moved to Philly and with more... Um, a more homogenous racial group, you discover that there are other issues that exist in the world, like intra-group issues, and that was my first real run-in with colorism, because kids can be cruel and they can be very like honest with like what they're thinking, and you would just hear just like just like the most awful things being said about yourself if you were dark skin or your classmates if you were dark skin and you'd almost be relieved if you got put in a class where you're not the darkest person in the class because you're like okay i'm dark skin but that person is darker than me they're gonna get it a little bit more than me and it's like selfish but it's like you're also in the fourth grade and you're like also just like hoping for some kind of respite from the bullying um so that was really my um first like really tangible run-in with um colorism but also i mentioned that i'm from sierra leone and colorism is huge in sierra leone and just in west africa because the skin bleaching industry is a billion dollar industry you know as it also is in like asia and other parts of the world so i also grew up in a family where me and my dad were the same shade. I, I think um, when I was younger, he was a little darker than me. And my little brothers were very light. So I think I understood at a young age, even when I didn't have the like the cultural context or the history or their language to describe it, that people associate light skinnedness with like femininity and dark skinnedness with masculinity like I think I saw that play out in a lot of the relationships I saw it would be like with like the husband's dark skinned the mom is like lighter skinned the wife is like lighter skinned or like brown skinned and I think I picked up on comments about um like people calling my little brothers when they were very light comparing them to like girls like they're just like they're so pretty they kind of look like girls even you know so I think I subconsciously picked up on that stuff and then when I got to a middle school where it was like the most overt because kids would just come up to you and tell you anything I remember this one comment this kid came up to me was like oh if you didn't if it weren't for your long eyelashes I would think you're a boy because you're so dark and that's like literally something he verbatim like told me and it's just like I didn't have anything in my toolbox to process that kind of comment, so I kind of just let it roll off my back. It was really just such a jarring experience to go from one place where I experienced a lot of like racism and anti-blackness and xenophobia to go to another place where it's like, okay, the racism is like, like I'm experiencing the racism, of course, because I'm a black person who lives in under in the underfunded. Southwest Philly hood, but I'm going to a school now with predominantly black kids and I'm experiencing some other vices. 
I appreciate you sharing all that for, for two reasons. One, I think that a lot of people can probably relate to it and it's probably cathartic to hear, you know, the stories of other people experiencing mm-hmm. it and being able to feel less alone in that experience, but also for a lot of white people, including myself, to be able to hear that and understand, mm-hmm. you know, uh, probably a lot of examples of, of things that they are working on and things that they can do to improve the way that they're contributing to or trying to not contribute to colorism. So yeah. I really appreciate that. And there's something that you mentioned. It's a great segue. I really appreciate mm-hmm. bringing it up, which is the skin bleaching and mm-hmm. skin lightening. And that feeds into a lot of the issues around racialized beauty standards. And mm-hmm. I, I think that is something that I wanted to unpack a little bit more and specifically talk about how colorism contributes to racialized beauty standards that we see today mm-hmm. in general. Yeah, so... I think colorism contributes a lot to racialized beauty standards. I don't necessarily, I think it would be way harder to even sell a skin bleaching product if colorism didn't exist because you're selling this product so people can approximate this ideal, which is that lighter skin is better or more beautiful or it makes you look more intelligent or more capable or cleaner. So without colorism and without those societal beliefs I think something like a bleaching cream would be rendered like useless because it's like you're not like what is the goal of it then and I think it's really interesting because I think when we talk about bleaching we focus a lot on outside of America so we focus on like Asia and like Africa because they have booming um, skin bleaching businesses and industries but even living in Harlem like I go to the beauty supply store and there's skin bleaching products like just on the shelf and I understand that like African people live in Harlem too and like um, people have immigrated from other parts of the world to come to New York City Um, so that might be a reason why you're seeing those types of products but I think Colorism is just so ubiquitous, so um, the products that help, that really profit from colorism existing are going to be ubiquitous. Um, so that's very interesting, and I also think like colorism is aiding to the problem of skin bleaching because you just look at our representation on TV and like in the movies and who gets to be a love interest or who gets to be beautiful in television and a lot a lot of the time it's uh lighter skinned people and if it is a darker skinned person it's like one of them or like and i'm thinking about like lupita diongo or like you know like we always seem to have like three dark-skinned women at a time who get to really embody beauty on television and even with those people it's like um, they're also playing roles where they're, they're like subservient, where they're like enslaved or where they're maids or like in positions of like less, much less power than people who are white or lighter skinned um, get to play. So I think representation adds to that because then our brains start to subconsciously make connections between light skinned and certain other things like, okay light-skinned in freedom and light-skinned in intelligence and light-skinned in beauty and light-skinned in deserving of love i think our brains make those connections and even if we don't sit down and like think about those connections like super consciously i think those connections um 
are going to infiltrate our consumer habits and we just start consuming different aesthetics and products that we think will help us reach that idealized version of beauty and improve our lives and something i also like to i think when people think about beauty they think it's like frivolous because like they associate it with women and like but we're all doing beautification things all of the time like whether it's getting a haircut or getting your or buying like some type of outfit like we're all doing beautifying ourselves all the time to like fit in to conform to um, just get through the day, just get through our lives, get through our jobs. So I also think people ignore that, people forget to just humanize people who do skin bleaching. I think my first step, like the first thing you wanna do is be like, oh, like, why are you doing that? Like, it's like bad for your health. And it's also like, you don't think black is beautiful, but um, I've learned to be less judgmental um, because I think if you're resorting to that kind of, um, beautification you've you've had a really tough time like understanding that coming to the understanding that lighter skin is privileged and you've done a lot of like internal wrestling so I think now and obviously I'm not going online advocating for skin bleaching but when I am denouncing it I make sure I want to contextualize why people are doing it in the first place. So it's not like people wake up and like, oh, I'm going to harm my health today. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. like put myself at risk for whatever type of cancer. I think they wake up and they want to feel beautiful and they want to feel seen. They want to navigate, be able to navigate their workplaces a little less stressful, like the world is already stressful. So I think through beautification, people are just trying to be less stressed and trying to be a little more happy and so it's not really about blaming the individuals it's about blaming like the billion dollar industries that even like even like advertise like crazy i've seen crazy advertisements um and like india about like skin bleaching products where it's like they'll literally say like you won't find love until you you're lighter skinned you know and here i think in america it's less overt but it's definitely still there it's definitely in our like media representation and who we think is beautiful and who we represent as beautiful and our like television shows and even like with our policies and like just the fact that like the crown act exists um, because um there was such a need to legislate just like equality like hair and it's like it's like people show up in the world and they're acutely aware of how they are received and i think they internalize that it's like if you show up and and all your natural blackness and like your fro your short fro and like your dark skin and people treat you differently people are smart they're gonna understand that they're gonna internalize that and it might compel them to make modifications and like opt into something like a skin bleaching cream or like a hair straighten a chemical relaxer or certain uh, or things like that so um that's how i think colorism and the world's investment in colorism really contributes to the skin bleaching crisis yeah you mentioned and i you know i like that kind of full answer because it it talks and touches on kind of the psychological the psychosocial aspect Mm -hmm. of what's going on and how colorism then drives the skin lightening Mm -hmm. um and hair relaxers um and you know what that does and how you kind of approach that on your on your platform but you know can you talk a little bit about kind of like that public health aspect you talk about Mm -hmm. why is this 
uh, you know, I think it's it seems like it should be obvious as to yeah. why this is a bad thing to, you know, for chemical relaxers mm-hmm. and skin bleaching. But from a from a health standpoint, why is this a bad thing? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first, I want to talk about how um, the world in general is just calibrated, I think, for lighter skinned. Um, I did some work um, during my final semester at Columbia with Dr. Elis P. Monk. He's a sociologist at Harvard University, and he has tons of scholarship and research around colorism and how it affects public health. And something he's been looking into is pulse exometers, medical devices, and how they're not really calibrated to register dark skin. And you can imagine the implications of that with COVID disproportionately affecting black communities and pulse exometers not really being effective at like with darker skin um so i think it's there's one part of the public health connection is that we live in a world that just really privileges the health of lighter skinned people and white people so a lot of people unfortunately get left behind and i also think Another public health connection is that sometimes when you're so focused on beautifying yourself and achieving some or approximating some type of ideal because of the immense societal pressure you're feeling, you're going to disregard other very maybe obvious things. Like I've had a chemical relaxer like when I was younger, way younger, and I didn't know anything about carcinogens or whatever, any like future implications, but like it just did not feel good. (laughs) Like it was like burning my scalp, you know? So I think people are even having those experiences way early before the research catches up where the research is telling you like, oh, there might have like very detrimental effects to your health. We are going through these rituals where it's like it really hurts to put on like a chemical relaxer and you kind of feel like there's something wrong like you shouldn't be putting anything on your scalp that's like burning it and making it feel like it's on fire but that pain the pain of like trying to fit in is can be more compelling than that like physical pain so i think it's really important we study like colorism and like skin bleaching for public health because people are just we need to understand that beauty is such a force that people will forego health and like they will incur any type of like health risks um, to just be able to navigate the world and navigate the world with a little bit more ease, um, which is why I think we have to humanize people in these conversations. We can't just be like, oh, like, this is the literal research, like, the research is showing you that you're going to be at risk for whatever type of cancer, whatever type of illness, why can't you get it through your thick skull, like, why can't you just, like, Mm -hmm. forgo these products, um, forgo these, um, just forgo these, like, beautification processes, it's because beauty is such a force, and racism is such a force, and colorism is such a force, Mm -hmm. And people are a lot more compelled by that, I think, than they are about, or they will make sacrifices um, that kind of disregard their health. Mm -hmm. So I think it's another avenue to have that like holistic conversation about it. Um, Just presenting the data, I don't think is enough. 
because it is enough to spook some people but some people are just so deeply invested in that stuff where it's like it's not going to be enough of a deterrent i think Mm -hmm. i also think uh, larger societal overhaul and transformation Mm -hmm. would really be needed but that's (laughs) a lot more involved i think yeah it's a lot of unlearning as exactly. you mentioned before that has to happen in kind exactly. of a, like a large scale yeah. exactly and people say government moves slow society moves slow yes. as, a, as a society we move culturally definitely very slow mm-hmm. so when it comes to colorism beauty standards mm-hmm. um, how can people get more involved in, mm-hmm. in this in this work and feel like they can participate to where they are helping with the unlearning mm-hmm yeah, so I think people should definitely seek out content that's made by dark-skinned people, which sounds just very common sense, but um, I think sometimes in the advocacy, online advocacy like terrain or uh, landscape, people just think certain impressions are just cash grabs, so they'll just like just they'll just like take something, make it their own without being very personally like um, affected by it so I think definitely listen to people who have experienced colorism talking about colorism because I that just makes the most sense to me and I think reading also really helps and even if you're not a reader there are podcasts that are helpful I think listening to people's experience, like just talking to people, I, I don't know, I think that's something people take for granted. Like you have dark skinned people in your lives, like talk to them about their experiences and really listen to them, you know, like don't go into the um, conversation planning to get defensive or like offended um, if they say something or like if they even call you out about like something you did that made them feel uncomfortable or lesser than because of their skin tone. Like just go in with an open mind and talk to people about your experiences because I think I had this spotlight series on my page where um, dark-skinned black people who are affected by colorism and misogyny send in their stories and they're super vulnerable and personal and they'll it'll just be like the worst things ever about like how they were bullied since as early as 10 years old for like even earlier for their skin color and people black people would be in the comments like oh like wow like maybe i should talk to like my dark skin daughter you know because maybe she's going through something that like Mm -hmm. i don't know or like maybe i should talk to like my nieces about this because sometimes kids won't like outright come to you but i think talking to people who are affected by whatever vice you're trying to unlearn and understand is super accessible first of all and super impactful so i think that's one way if you're not like an online person if you don't really have the time or um the the desire to do the reading or the researching anecdotes personal anecdotes experiences like that's expertise in itself like people are experts in their own lives and you can gain a lot from just listening to people and their experiences yeah so hopefully we'll let this be a warm-up for people to start that conversation (laughs) and use this to you know Mm -hmm. fuel that conversation one last thing i want to ask you what would you like to leave the listeners with is there anything specific that you want to promote either by your own advocacy and mm-hmm. or other things that you think are important for people to to look towards as a resource in mm-hmm. in 
this space of trying to address colorism? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my Spotlight series has been on like a hiatus for a little bit, but I'm trying to restart it. Um, so if you are a dark-skinned person, black person affected by misogyny and colorism, and you need a platform or space um, to talk about colorism and your experiences or your experiences with um, other so oppressions, um, you are welcome to my Instagram platform, The Darkest Two, um, to talk about those experiences, or you're welcome to refer someone you know who might have that kind of experience to The Darkest Two. And I think another thing you might want to do is just follow more dark-skinned people, <laughs> um, which I don't think people immediately go to. I remember when I first got on TikTok, my feed was just white girls, biracial girls, like light, just light-skinned people galore. Um, same type of hair structure, uh, texture, same type of like features, like just very conventionally attractive people. And I, I realized like I control somewhat of my fe own feed, you know, like like being intentional about like curating my own Instagram and like my own like TikTok and following people who I would probably not see otherwise if I wasn't being so intentional. So I think people can be more can approach social media with more intentionality. Like there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control. We'll see people Instagram will promote who they want and like the types of thing they want like they'll promote whatever drives engagement or whatnot but you if you're coming into social media with more intention um there is a way to curate your experience so that it can be more beneficial to you in your unlearning process so that's another thing i encourage people to definitely do awesome and i love that we've just branded this the unlearning process. It sounds like yeah. such a meta concept. The unlearning has begun. <laughs> we've we've entered the unlearning. Forget the awakening. We need the unlearning. Yes. yes. And yes. TK is bringing you the unlearning. Yes. The unlearning. The unlearning. Bye, TK. So thank you so much for joining us. We had a blast listening to your your experiences and sharing some of your uh, insights with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. All right, we are joined by the one, the only Yua Vosper here at We Act. Yua, can you introduce yourself? So, um, as LG just said, I, my name is Yua Vosper. I am the policy and regulatory manager here at We Act. I basically work in the federal office, but I live in New York, and um, my portfolio contains toxins and um, a lot of the beauty justice work and a lot of my background is in the beauty justice fashion arena he was great she's got lots of knowledge and expertise that she's going to share with us today we're really excited and obviously you just got to listen to a great interview with tk about colorism and how it fits into to beauty and tk talked a lot about skin lightening and you are here as a pretty pretty much an expert on the skin lightening policy world so can you maybe give us like an intro and like how skin lightening is a policy issue and how we act advocate for skin lightening stuff in terms of policy so skin lightening is a it's a policy issue and it's a cultural issue that has like permeated through media and advertising 
when we think about media and advertising, we think about what we constantly see as images that are just like inundated toward us each day, which is a very Eurocentric type of look. In Louisiana, where I'm from, we say light, bright, close to white. And it's the mm-hmm. same kind of prevalence that people have like a standard for. The, the lighter you are, the more Eurocentric you look, the more professional you're deemed, the more the more you're trying to better acclimate into society. So it's, number one, a cultural issue. And when that stems into policy, is that toxins and ingredients that come in our cosmetics are not fully regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, which is FDA. So they do not regulate cosmetics in the way that we think they do. So we think that they're out here and you, they are detecting and they're testing and no, they're not. So what they're doing is a reactive approach. Someone has to call in, a, a great number has to call in. It has to be, te- they, have to, they have to go to the company and then it's a whole process of recall. So when we have these ingredients in our our products, we don't, we're thinking that there's a regulatory body that's protecting us when there kind of is, but kind of not. (laughs) So um, it's kind of up to us to be able to determine what is in our products and to have a larger purchasing power. So when we think of mercury and skin lightening products, many people may even go and get these products thinking, oh, I have like an acne spot that I just want to clear up and they pick up a product in the drugstore and they don't look on the back to see what are the ingredients. They just want the spot to be gone. And then it works, but in that process, you've put a neurotoxin on your face multiple times a day. And those kinds of chemicals and toxins bioaccumulate in the body. So that's how it becomes a regulatory issue is that people are using this thinking they're protected from it when in fact, they're not at all. What I think is crazy is that I've actually had conversations with people in agencies, federal agencies, who did not know that cosmetics were not regulated the way that they that we all think that they are. Mm-hmm. And so there are people who are actually working in these spaces who assume that they are regulated, and you know their ears perk up and they kind of get worried that they're that they're not. And so I think that is definitely a problem. But luckily, we have people like you because you actually wrote a bill that is now in law now part of New York state law. So can you tell us a little bit about that? It's my greatest accomplishment. Um, Yes, I can. I had the opportunity as policy staff to write a bill and it was uh, focusing on mercury of skin lightening. And it was a a process that I, I took very seriously because it has a great impact on a community that I belong to, which is person of color or female of color. And it impacts women of color and non-binary femme identifying individuals in a huge way because that's the target that uses nine times more beauty products than any other demographic. So it was very important to me to get the language right and to ensure that my point was coming across because a lot of times when you're writing bills, they um, will read the bill and then you'll get it back and then I'm like, that's not what I said. So I wanted to be clear what I wanted. And so it that took a lot of, not expertise, but it took a lot of me ask, asking for help. I actually, I graduated from Fordham Law School and I'm very happy to have um, a huge support system within that, which is 
the dean of uh, my program, she was very excited to hear that I was learning, I wanted to learn more about drafting. She helped get me in touch with a professor and I had the opportunity to kind of learn how to draft legislation for state and federal, what it took to draft legislation. And it also brought a lot of my background because I have a master's degree in linguistics. So um, using words precisely and carefully was like something I enjoy. So um, having the opportunity to write the bill and draft the bill and then watch it succeed was a great accomplishment. Uh, so it was around Christmas Eve that I found out it was signed into law. So it was a good Christmas present for myself. So uh, just like in a, a nice short snippet, what in a nutshell does that bill do? This bill that you wrote, what, what is it doing and how is it protecting people? So the bill prohibits mercury to be used as an ingredient in any personal care product or cosmetic in New York State. So basically, no one can sell or manufacture or distribute it. Um, and this is big because it even includes internet sales. So you can't buy it over the internet and then distribute it in your store. Yeah, and for folks who aren't familiar with mercury and, and why it's harmful, can, can you say maybe one or two words about why it's important that that gets removed from skin lining products? So mercury uh, is a neurotoxin, and it's commonly used in cosmetics because it inhibits melatonin, melanin from further accumulating or producing. So when it's put into products, that's basically why it's there. It's a, a, like an inhibitor, but it has horrible side effects such as neurology issues, reproductive issues, some People who have used it for years as it bioaccumulates in the body have had seizures. Some are rendered paralyzed. And the worst, of course, is death. Yeah. And for folks who don't know the concept of bioaccumulation, it basically means, you know, when you use a product, it gets stored in your body. And over time, that storing of that chemical adds up to where it has a more damaging, has a worse effect on your body than it would just in a single dose on its own. It adds up basically over time is what that means. Thank you for that explanation, Yoa. I feel like bills are sometimes so daunting for people to think about. And you went through the whole process. You did the thing. And now we have this great law that's protecting people. Uh, circling back to the interview with TK, what did you think about what she had to say? Does uh, Any of the things that she said about you know experiencing colorism growing up resonate with you? Does it uh, align with your experiences? What does that topic mean to you when we talk about colorism? So I definitely experienced colorism growing up. I grew up in Louisiana, very small town, very rural. We have a Walmart and we have a, oh, we just got a McAllister's Deli. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's a sign of a small town. You got, got Walmart. And a McAllister's Deli. And McAllister's Deli. Don't forget the McAllister's. <laughs> just came. We're happy about it. Okay. So um, definitely experienced colorism within my own family. I'm from a Creole family, which tend to be a lighter family in African-American culture and households. And my father is African. So I was automatically a little bit darker than everybody else. So definitely like, I don't think it was meant to be hurtful, but comments were like made, like, you know, we don't want to be as dark as you are. Like, so yeah, I did especially like experience that in my own family. And I don't think it was maliciously, but it was done in a way that you think like, why are they bringing this up? And has any of that experience that you had, did any of that go into your bill writing process? 
so definitely I wrote from a place of knowing, but I also wrote in a place of precision. I, I did not want, as I said before, I wanted the wording to be precise so that nothing could be dramatically changed, that the bill would not be something that I did not want it to be or be added or something different added. I didn't want that at all. I wanted the bill to be precise. So I, when I did that, I, I wrote it with an intention in mind and my intention was to have mercury out, not to have it, you know, measured, mitigated. I wanted it out of product. So that was the intent and purpose when I was writing it because I know the harmful effects of it. If you do use it to reach a certain standard that probably you can't even achieve in the first place because it's not realistic. Do you have any other thoughts or reactions or just comments about colorism and its contributions and the, the beauty space and just the environmental justice impacts or implications of the work that you do? So the first of my thoughts would be um, I don't want people to feel afraid to buy beauty products or cosmetic products. I want them to be informed. So that, you know, you have to pick your poison. I hate to say it like that, but um, you have to figure out what's going to, where you're going to give and where you're going to take. You know, some women are like, I refuse to use talc in my, my cosmetics and talc is a form of asbestos, if you do not know. And it was a main ingredient in the Johnson and Johnson's um, baby powder controversy. And uh, many cosmetic companies are trying to remove it. Are and, and are removing it, but some products and some of our faves, such as our good sis, Rihanna, she has talk in her products, but no. do we boycott Rihanna? No. <laughs> you know, we kind of pick our, you know, pick what we can do. Um, there's lead in lipsticks, you know, like there's, there's toxins in a lot of things. And some women say, you know, I just don't, I, and men, I don't do anything with fragrance because fragrance they don't have to disclose. We, I don't want you to feel so afraid. I want you to be informed with your money and with your purchasing power on how to use the products and what you have. Because education is power. So if you're informed about what you pick up, you feel a little bit safer. You're like, okay, I know it has this. Maybe I won't use as much. You know, you have to, it's a balance. And when I think about my next thought, I think about, um, like we right now in the fashion and beauty space, there's a big push towards like organic and clean and blah, blah, blah. But nothing is really like, there's no standard of definition for clean. There's no standard definition for organic. There's no, sta there's no standard for anything. So when we think about that, we need to really, again, be informed. But I, I'll, going back to what I said earlier, black women and non-binary um, femme-identifying uh, femme people of color, that's where the purchasing power is for this billion-dollar industry. And I didn't say million. I said, buh, with a B, billion-dollar <laughs> industry. So if we are informed, we can take power back. And also, I during the today, during about like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, I did um, the Harlem Fashion Row Black Fashion Summit. I, was, uh, I participated in that online. And one of the presenters um, said that, you know, what, what does she want to see next? And she wanted to see black people and minority companies owning the space in a way that's meaningful, having black um, 
distributors, having black manufacturers, having black chemists, things like that, so that we start reclaiming that space instead of being told what is in that space. And I see that a lot, especially with um, reports that show how much we spend, like we're basically spending the most money in this area, and yet black owned or minority owned cosmetics are the last to receive any kind of funding or the last to be on you know, put on the shelves. Where is the black section? Because if you are a person of color, that section in Target or Walmart is three shelves and you're little it's and it's meager. You're like, okay, I'm just gonna have to like see if I have it in the back and then you call for somebody and they don't know what you're talking about. So you know, that's what I would want to see moving forward. It's like, yes, we can talk about regulation, but when we start controlling that space is when we're going to see some power because that's where our money goes. I kind of like how you kind of approach this as like almost like a three-pronged approach here. It's you've got the education from the consumers themselves. So that way, as we choose to buy and not buy certain things, not purchasing certain things is very important and very powerful as well because they can move a market. But then on top of that, you're also saying we should also be in the industry. We should have black chemists. We should have black distributors and kind of owning it that space as well, on top of having people like you making sure that we get some of these toxic chemicals completely banned or out of our cosmetics or, or regulated very strictly. So I like that kind of multi-pronged approach to kind of solving an issue that is both a social and an environmental health issue as well. Yes. And just circling back quickly to your point that you made about people being more informed, I know that there are some apps out there that people can use to get information about what are the ingredients in their products? What products are safe to buy? I don't know if you want to speak quickly to those. There's one that I use. It's called Clearia, C-L-E-A-R-Y-A. And it's free. And basically you can put any cosmetic in the app and it renders back. And what I like is that it does tears. So you'll have like red, these are harmful. And like yellow, these are harmful, in you know, smaller amounts or these this was what this one does it then but it gives you like information to choose like what do you want to do going back to education so we can all look at the back of our products and be like what is tripto fifth lane and color four two five six i don't know because i sure don't and what is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious <laughs> why is this on this product <laughs> is it good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what I think. You know, like, excellent. It's what it looks like. What is Xenophilopin 0.34? I don't know. But what it does is, like, it'll tell you, this is what supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is. And this is why it's not, it's, it may be harmful, it may be somewhat harmful, or it'll have a big, you know, red, this is absolutely harmful. Please put it down. <laughs> like, do not go. Do not go to the register. That's literally how ingredients read in a lot of the back of our things, um, especially cosmetic and skincare. It's super, super, super califragilistic expialidocious. It's hard, it's, it's hard to say it, isn't it? it? Is. And yeah. if you can't really say it, I wonder if we should really be putting yes, it on this our is, this products. is the super califragilistic expialidocious test. If you can't say the ingredients on your product, you maybe you shouldn't buy it. Yeah. Uh, but also check out those apps that you had mentioned. There's also the Environmental Working Group app and Think Dirty. I think it's another one. And we'll post some links in our show notes for you to check those out. But thank you so much, Yua. We appreciated all your words of wisdom. And mm -hmm. we can't wait to have you back on the show again. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thanks for joining us. On behalf of all of us and listeners, thank you for getting mercury out of our yes. products. It's my legacy. Particularly in New York State. It's my legacy.
All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you made it this far in the show, that means you probably enjoyed what you heard. So tune in on the last Monday of every month for new episodes. One thing that we also forgot to mention during our interview with Yua is the Beauty Inside Out campaign that We Act is working on. The Beauty Inside Out campaign focuses on addressing the toxicity of beauty products that are marketed to people of color and that perpetuate a racially biased standard of beauty. There's a working group associated with that campaign that uses the input of our members to develop our campaign strategy and is a forum for community members to learn about making better choices about their beauty products. So I encourage you to go to our website. We'll also post a link in our show notes to check out the Beauty Inside Out campaign there. And I encourage you to become a part of that working group to get engaged with this work. Lonnie, how can the folks find us? You can check out We Act on Facebook at We Act for EJ. That's W-E-A-C-T-F-O-R-E-J. And also on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at We Act for EJ. That's W-E-A-C-T number four EJ. And check out our website at weact.org for more information about environmental justice. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, don't be toxic. Be beautiful. Bye.